This podcast is brought to you by the InterAstra Institute, the global public square for the business of space. Join us at interastra.space. It was only a question of when. <laughs> <laughs> These APIs are the Lego bricks. And this is a great example, I think. Someone gave me a vintage uh, Lego kit from the 1960s. This, I don't know how much this kit is worth. They found it in their garage. Uh, it's a, a wonderful, beautiful thing. The packaging all from the 1960s. But I took those bricks out of that box and I added to what I was already building from a modern set. But those bricks from the 1960s worked perfectly with the bricks from my 2021 set. And I was able to continue building. And that's exactly what we're talking about with data. In contrast to all the data that I collected during my PhD work in the 70s, which I'm sure has suffered the Indiana Jones fate, and it's in some <laughs> shoebox on yeah. some large shelf somewhere doing nothing. <laughs> I am the only person to have walked in space and gone to the deepest point in the ocean. Hi, I'm Kathy Sullivan, and I'm an explorer. Exploring doesn't always have to involve going to some remote or exotic place. It simply requires your commitment to put curiosity into action. So join me on this podcast journey as I reflect on lessons learned from life so far and from my brilliant and ever inquisitive guests. We'll explore together in this very moment from right where you are. Spaceship not required. Welcome to Kathy Sullivan Explores. Before we take off, I have a gift for you. I believe that no matter where you are today, an active thirst for knowledge will help unlock your ability to live a life of meaning and happiness. So I'm sharing some lessons I've learned on my road less traveled. Over at KathySullivanExplores.com, you'll find my seven astronaut tips to improving your life on Earth. When you sign up, I'll send them to you and also make sure you're the first to discover future podcast episodes and learn more about exciting adventures ahead. Just head on over to KathySullivanExplores.com. I'm famous for stepping out of a space shuttle on a spacewalk, but we've all had stepping out moments in our lives. What were some of yours? Stepping out onto the court for a big game? Out of your family home when you went off to college? Maybe out of a steady job, or you stepped out from somebody's shadow? Dawn Wright's life has been a series of big-time stepping out moments accompanied by many occasions when she stepped into challenging social and professional situations. Hers is a unique story of race and identity, with lessons for all of us on diversity, otherness, and the courage it takes to be the only or the other in a place. It's also a tale of succeeding without mentors or role models who look like you, of learning how to tap into the supportive resources around you, and of holding true to yourself and your goals despite the judgments of others. All of this is capped off with her delightful fandom. She's an avid Star Wars fan and certified AFOL, adult friend of Lego. As you listen, I'm sure you'll get a lot of useful insights from the stories she shares with us today. One final thing before we begin. Early in our conversation, you'll hear me tell you what the acronym ESRI, E-S-R-I, originally meant but I'll get it wrong. I'll say Earth Systems Research Institute instead of Environmental Systems Research Institute. ESRI founder Jack Dangerman would be quite annoyed with me if I didn't set the record straight on that. So let's get started. I'm delighted to be speaking today with a longtime colleague and friend, Dr. Don J. Wright, also known in ocean circles as Deep Sea Dawn. Dawn is many, many things. She's a professor at Oregon State University. She's also chief scientist at ESRI, uh, which used to be called the Earth Systems Research Institute, but now goes just by the acronym. It's the giant in geographic information system software and services. Dawn has served on many prestigious science advisory boards over the course of her career, not least of which the one I convened at NOAA back when I was administrator. And as you would imagine, she's received many awards for her teaching and her science and her service. And quite delightfully, uh, recently was elected to both the National Academy of Sciences 
and the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. Very much well-deserved and very high honors. So welcome, Dawn. Thank you so much, Kathy. <laughs> this is a real thrill. <laughs> Well, and I always love to chat with you because I can see into the room behind you and I see <laughs> shelves full of all the, the toys and wonders that you are so well known for. You're, you have this massive Lego collection and uh, Star Wars collection. And uh, I want to talk with you as maybe as we come to the end of the podcast about where your deep seated fan interests in these films and genres come from. Oh, can we start with that? No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> we can go any, probably any which way we want. No, let's not start with that because that would take all of the, the time for your, your session. And, we, and we, we do want to talk about uh, some really serious substantive things that are happening in the world for sure. Yeah. So Don, my motivation in starting this podcast was to explore stepping out. You know, I'm famous for having stepped out of a spacecraft, but in the course of a lifetime, all of us step out of many things. You step out of somebody's shadow or you step out on a stage or you step out of one career into another. And this is what I'd really love to explore with you today, because I happen to know that both you and your mother have lived lives that contained countless really bold stepping out moments as you made your way forward through life. So maybe that's the right place for us to start then. Take us back to the early 1960s and tell us who the young Dawn Wright was and what her circumstances were like, where she was living her earliest years. Paint me that very early picture, the starting point of the Dawn Wright journey story. <laughs> I love the, the framing of this uh, as stepping out indeed, Kathy, and thank you for indicating my mother in this because that really is how it started uh, for, for me. She really was the one to step out in many big ways because her side of the family is from Baltimore, Maryland. Um, my father's side is from Charleston, South Carolina, so East Coast roots. And I think both families, I know much more about my mother's side of the family, uh, especially her side of the family has long extended roots uh, in the state of Maryland. I wish that all of us could have access to Professor Skip Gates's Finding Your Roots research. But uh, I think even without that, there would be this family tree that extends uh, into the all the way back to the revolution and all of that. But no one uh, in her family had left that area. And she and her siblings were among the first to go to college. But she stepped out even further because she wanted to go to a liberal arts college in Illinois. So she stepped out in the 1950s to do that and went to school. First, she went to Howard uh, University, but then she went all the way out to this little school 25 miles west of Chicago, Wheaton College. And it was during the time in the 50s when schools were not allowing African-Americans to enroll. But this particular school, uh, Wheaton welcomed her and a small group of other uh, African-American students. And then she went from there to step out into South Dakota. Let me back you up to Wheaton for a second. Has she ever shared with you what it was that drew her to Wheaton? It's a, it's a Christian college as yes. well as being small liberal arts. And I've, I've wondered what play, if any, her faith, religion, or just the fact that it was one unusual place that would accept African-American students at that time frame, because that, that was, as you say, very rare. Yeah, it, it was all of that. And I think it's because uh, Wheaton continues to be, you know, evangelical Christianity is, uh, many of us are uncomfortable with it, given how things have transpired the last four years. But we are people of faith. And both my mother and I are people of faith. Her father was a Baptist minister, and that's where she found out about uh, Wheaton College, and she found out about it also through a Billy Graham crusade. Okay. Uh, there was a very interesting American experience on PBS recently about Billy Graham. Yeah. I would recommend that to, to your listeners. And that was really the link. Billy Graham went to Wheaton College and remains uh, Wheaton's most famous alum. And so that deeply affected her. 
And the word evangelical really was it, it today it has yeah. some significant political overtones to it, which mm -hmm. it, it didn't have then. It really just meant a you correct me if I have this wrong, but a, a theology in, which is centered on an individual relationship with God. Exactly. Yes. The politicization, as is so often used now, of the church or of that church or of the white evangelical church is most unfortunate. But hopefully we'll, we'll come through that. But of course, in, in that time and during my time, I went to Wheaton College because of my mother, because of all of the stories that she told me about her experience there, how wonderful it was, how her faith deepened. And Wheaton had also stepped out with its very strong geology program that actually uh, produced some quite famous uh, geochemists. For a while, Wally Broker and Carl Tarikian were, were at Wheaton. Those are renowned names. Some, some renowned names. Uh, so that also attracted me uh, to, to the college. So I ended up going to Wheaton in the 1980s. But stepping back a little bit earlier, again, she as, uh, as an academic, uh, once she was trained in her craft, which was speech, communication, and language arts in South Dakota, of all places, she went to South Dakota State University which again, I don't think she ever saw another black person the whole time she was there. <laughs> How old were you at this point? Uh, I, I was not, I was You're not, not on the yet. scene this yet, was, okay. Uh, yeah, I'm not on the scene. This <laughs> is before she, she met my father and got married. <laughs> but I'm mentioning this because her, her whole life is this series of, of stepping outs. And once yeah. she did uh, finish her, her yeah. master degree and begin her career as an instructor of speech communication, going back to the East Coast and working through uh, various teaching positions. Uh, she met my father and they got married, but she continued to work as a university instructor. She worked at Morgan uh, State for a while. But the next step for her was she had this opportunity to teach at the University of Saskatchewan in Canada. So at that time, I was on the scene and I was uh, five years old. My father, his path is, is different. He was not able to step out in the way that he wanted to. He wanted to be an NBA uh, star, or he wanted to play in the NBA, and that didn't work out for him. So he was uh, in, in coaching, uh, high school coaching. And so I'm, I'm mentioning this also because it was much easier for us as a family unit to follow her path as she stepped out, something else that was quite unusual. She led, uh, so she found this position in teaching in Saskatchewan. So we trundled off to the University of Saskatchewan. Uh, I was five. Have you seen the movie Fargo? <laughs> what do you remember of that? <laughs> that that's it. It's just, all I remember is this white, vast expanse of snow. <laughs> I'm surprised that that early shocking experience at age five did not, in the end, put you off Wheaton, which was... Oh, no. <laughs> just from a climate point of view. I know. Just... <laughs> I enjoyed it. I enjoyed okay. the snow. I remember enjoying uh, kindergarten and the and the children there. Everyone was friendly, and but it it was quite a, a shock because from there she found a teaching position in Hawaii. So we went from Saskatchewan to Honolulu, Hawaii, and so we were in Hawaii for the next ten years. I've come across several comments that you've made in talking about your early years, Dawn, and I'm going to ask you to go into more of this, but what it was like to grow up the years you did, which are like five to 15-ish in Hawaii with its, its very diverse society. But it make, does make me wonder, in Saskatchewan, for example, as probably the only Black family in the community that you knew, when, if ever, did that start to strike you? I mean, you've, you've drawn on people who, as mentors and coaches all through your life who didn't look like you. So you're not someone who's bought into the, you know, if they don't look like me, they can't instruct me. But I'm, I'm just curious, did it, did it register at all to you that that was a difference of your families and, or uh, did it matter? So I'm so glad you asked that question because I think it's so important now, uh, given that we're in this age of, of wokeness and the awareness of the uh, inequities in our society. We're thinking about the police all the time or, or the, all the protests. And there is this emphasis on otherness 
as something that is to be feared or that is unhelpful, which to answer your question for me, it did not occur to me at all that I was uh, the only one uh, in my classroom in kindergarten. Uh, And then when we moved to Hawaii, we were on Oahu for one year and we never saw other people who were African-American but there were, of course, t- many Polynesians. And my mother has often been mistaken for someone from Tonga. I have been mistaken for someone from Samoa or Fiji. Uh, my father even could have been maybe someone from, from Fiji, but he had more of the traditional African-American. I mean, he looked like someone who was from an urban Black area, whereas there was something about my mom and about me where, where people weren't quite sure. At any rate, it just did not matter did not matter even when we left Oahu after one year because my mother was at the university then she was asked to go to Maui to start the speech program at Maui Community College and we were the first African-American family to come to Maui and so we were the only ones there were some initial uh, hiccups I remember difficulty finding a place to live. There was uh, some incident where uh, someone didn't want to rent to us, or I had one bullying incident in school uh, where I was called the N-word and and it was very painful, but it was that one incident. Other than that, it was either a melting pot or a salad, depending on how people (laughs) interacted with each other. (laughs) It was a lot of melting going on though around me. (laughs) And people were interracial dating and marrying. And the one thing I will never forget is that children in Hawaii at that time, when they introduced themselves on the playground, uh, if somebody was new or if you were playing with someone who was in a different class and they weren't, you didn't see them in class, but you encountered them on the playground, you, somebody would say, hi, my name is Sam and I'm part Hawaiian, part Chinese, part Filipino, part Portuguese. What's your name? And so, <laughs> and, and someone would respond with, my name is, is uh, Leilani and I'm half Hawaiian because to be, to have native Hawaiian blood is a, a mark of uh, royalty. And I, I so wanted to be able to introduce myself that way. But <laughs> I said, my name is Dawn Wright and I am part American Negro. And I used that term back then in the early sixties and part Indian, because at that time we were also trying to figure out what the Native American ancestry might might be in our family, and I'm fascinated with that to this to this day. Wow! But uh, I also longed to be able to go to Kamehameha School. There was one little boy in my class, blonde hair, blue eyes, Howley, as they said, uh, very Caucasian. Yeah. But he had one sixteenth pure Hawaiian blood in him, and he was able to go to Kamehameha. And that special school with all of its wonderful resources, and you learn about the native Hawaiian culture, you learn to speak Hawaiian, you leave the island, you go to Oahu to the school there, Kamehameha has links to uh, to very good uh, colleges. I mean, it, it's just a wonderful, a wonderful yeah. pathway. So living on Maui, you know, you've ended up an interesting mix of geologist and oceanographer and, ge- and geographer and data specialist. Can you pinpoint where, I mean, clearly one would have fallen in love with the ocean living on Maui, at least from a toes in the sand and swimming in the water point of view. Uh, But would you pinpoint your school years in Maui as when the ocean bug really bit you and uh, in the sense of I want the ocean to be part of my life in some way or? Oh, yes. Yes, yes. Uh, So many of us as children, we were at the beach all the time. Uh, swimming in the water all the time. Uh, I I just love that. I loved uh, as I was swimming and doing a little snorkeling and body surfing, I became very enamored with, uh, with rocks. Everybody talks about marine biology and the fishes. And I love it when you give your interviews and you identify yourself as a marine geologist. There are other ways and other parts of the ocean to, to study and in our community, we are so proud of you because you are a marine <laughs> geologist and you, you went into space <laughs> and led the way. I started out as a rock pounder. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so I wanted to, to be a rock pounder too. And I was so, I loved igneous rocks, the volcanic rocks. As someone on Hawaii, uh, Haleakala, 
we learned about, about it in school and about how volcanoes formed. We learned about Mauna Loa, Mauna Kea, starting on the ocean floor as a seamount and rising to break the surface of the sea to be an island. That's how all of the islands were formed over that right. Hawaiian hotspot. So for me, the volcanic rocks became the, the coin of the realm, so to speak. And then the different types of sands, the olivine, the green olivine beaches, uh, some of them are pink, yep. uh, the black volcanic sand. So I really became interested in geology, although I became interested in underwater photography as well, because Jacques, everybody, I think in our generation, we point to Jacques Cousteau in one way or another. And I was a typical kid who was sat in front of the TV every Sunday night at six o'clock so I could get my weekly dose of the wonderful world of Disney, <laughs> followed immediately by the undersea world of Jacques, Jacques Cousteau, Cousteau, and then <laughs> off to bed. <laughs> Gee, that sounds familiar. <laughs> yeah. With all of those beautiful images dancing in my head as I went to bed, and Jacques Cousteau became a, a hero, of course, and then later uh, uh, Sylvia Earle with her work. But the, it was it was the photography and the videography that was so engaging. And I learned later that Jacques Cousteau, that was his thing. Yeah. He was not necessarily a scientific uh, oceanographer. Yeah, he was really a filmmaker as much as yeah. a, a storyteller. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, that's an interesting tie point, commonality point between our careers, because I, of course, got hooked on languages as what I thought would be a key to getting to explore and travel. And the the thing that hooked me and into making the switch to the earth sciences was the first time a marine geology professor showed me grains of sand and then diatoms under a microscope. And it was like, there is this entire like, wow. magical world. Whoa. Yeah. <laughs> so true. Cool. So true. And I also find a, a parallel uh, with your, your family, your, your parents were completely uh, supportive of you being interested in science and things athletic and adventurous. And it was the same way for me. My father didn't have uh, much impact or input either way. My parents divorced when I was 11. But my mother was certainly, she, she let me climb trees and play with Hot Wheels cars or yeah. uh, I got chemistry sets for, for Christmas. Um, Just be you. Yeah. yeah, so. Very cool. So you're in Hawaii, if I have the timing right, from mid-60s to mid-70s. And I remember those years very vividly growing up in Southern California and, you know, the, the tumultuousness of, of them. My mother was tracking the early civil rights movement issues and events, the marches and the protests. And of course, there was the tremendous violence and turmoil around the 1968 political conventions and the yeah. assassination of Martin Luther King and Bobby Kennedy. And those shocked, worried, frightened me in, in lots of ways. I'm wondering how much, how did that come through to you out in Hawaii? It was national news, but Hawaii's, you know, as close to the Western side of the Pacific as it is to the mainland. How did that enter your consciousness as a, what, seven, eight, nine, 10 year old? Mm hmm. Yeah, it was mainly watching the news, the evening news and watching in horror uh, and not really understanding at all what the problem was. We did not have protests, especially on Maui, because Maui was very a very sleepy island during that time. And there wasn't even the influx of tourism that they now have on the, in places like Kihei and Kanapali and Kahului. The, the Kahului airport was a still tiny little airport. We, we just did not have exposure to that. And so it was through the, uh, the TV and the radio that we, we learned about, about that. And my mom sat down and discussed it with me. As a child, I thought, okay, this is, this is terrible what's happening, but they will get it all worked out. And by the time I'm an adult, I will not have to worry about any of this. <laughs> Interesting. <laughs> Even now, many of us are like, this is 2021, people. What is it? <laughs> we, we can't get past these things. So it must have been around the time of Alan Shepard's first flight in space that you Tell me what precipitated the move from Hawaii back to Maryland. 
first of all, with regard to space flight, I did have a split second where I did want to be an astronaut, <laughs> like just about every young person during that that decade. It, it was a mandatory phase back yes. then. <laughs> <laughs> and I know exactly where I was on July 21st, 1969, uh, when uh, Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin uh, stepped onto the moon. I was sitting in front of the TV. There were, I think there were uh, visitors at our house. You're still in Hawaii? It's still in Hawaii. This was on Maui. Okay. We didn't leave uh, Maui until the mid 70s. Okay. And so I was enthralled by that, watching the, the TV, and nothing else was in my sphere of consciousness. <laughs> I found an interview where you commented on that moment, and I thought, gee, there's another similarity here, that you think there were people, guests visiting in your house, but all you remember is yeah. being in front of the television and watching <laughs> that. And I was on the floor in our little den in front of the TV, and to this day, I do not know for sure if any of the other three members of my family were in that room. That's how, yes. mes how mesmerized yes. I was. It's exactly <laughs> my experience, too. My mother told me later that the adults were, were talking on the patio, and I thought, what were you all doing on the patio? Why were you not in the living room glued to the TV like I was? <laughs> <laughs> at, at any rate, uh, the journey back to the East Coast for us was uh, a hard one because it was due to my grandmother being terminally ill. And so my mother wanted to be back on the East Coast in Maryland to help care for her along with the rest of the family. So we, we had to uh, pick up stakes. And by then my parents had been divorced. So my father was, was gone. But uh, my mother and I then, we as a, a mother-daughter duo had to step out on our own, which I think during that time was also not the norm that I know of to not have a full family unit. Plus, she's leaving a great job that's given both of you stability and a place you love to live. I mean, do you remember what you felt like at the thought of having to leave Maui, even knowing it was for you know, big reasons and maybe understanding those big reasons a bit? But what did that feel like? Yeah, I, it was, uh, I was devastated. It was a very hard move. We drove across the country because during that time, it was also the U.S. Bicentennial, uh, and that was a wonderful time. It was a wonderful distraction, and she decided that we should drive across the country and see as much of the country as possible, stop in national parks, uh, see a lot of the, uh, the colonial sites uh, on the East Coast once we got to the East Coast, and so uh, I showed her, in fact, the other day, the, the little journal that, that I wrote during that trip. <laughs> and I wrote poetry and took my little photographs and everything. Oh, neat. Uh, as I was also boohooing the fact that we were leaving Hawaii <laughs> and then uh, settling. We eventually settled uh, in Columbia, Maryland, close enough to Baltimore without living in Baltimore because neither of us wanted to live in Baltimore proper. By then, we, we knew that we were not urban people. We just could not take that. It was enough of a culture shock leaving the island uh, life of Hawaii and going to the East Coast. But Columbia, Maryland, about 25 miles or so south of Baltimore, was the perfect place. It was one of the planned cities uh, at the time, like Reston, Virginia. I think Reston, right. Virginia yep. and Columbia, Maryland were two of these planned cities in terms of urban planning and making sure that the neighborhoods were, were walkable and the mailboxes were, you didn't have a mailbox outside of your house. There was a cluster of mailboxes in the circle of your houses so that you would come and meet your neighbors as you were checking your mail. Those kinds of things they thought about in planning that city. I mean, the whole idea was to avoid people getting in their car, driving from home to work and driving back into the garage and, and never contacting, never having any social community experience, right? Exactly. Yeah. yeah. And and what a wonderful, it was really a coincidence that, that she uh, learned about Columbia and decided and found a way for us to settle there and found uh, work. None of that was set when you're leaving Hawaii, I would imagine. This is the pre-internet age. It was yes, vastly it, harder to absolutely. do the research and make <laughs> the connections. So you're you're just kind of jumping off the cliff into, you know, the ground will rise up to meet our feet. Kind of. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and it was quite frightening. I don't know how my mother did it. She had uh, she was stepping out for sure. She had a lot of courage. 
And her intuition and her her choices turned out to be great because we and we were just talking about this yesterday. In fact, what timing for your podcast? Because she was asking me about my experience in in high school. I forget uh, how that. Oh, I told her about a book that I I found on my shelf that I had uh, read in a independent study class uh, in in this high school, and it was an open space high school at the time. There was a, a, a lot of emphasis on advanced placement courses, but also on uh, student-led learning. Uh, and even the way the high school was built, the library was in the middle of a circular building. Kind of like the mailbox clusters, right? Everyone exactly. can meet at the library. Yes. Classrooms were surrounding it. And it was like, a, it was sort of like the uh, Apple design, yeah. perhaps. <laughs> but what a fantastic high school that turned out to be. Uh, I had a, a, a terrible time adjusting culturally at first, but I, I was able to make friends and get involved in athletics. And I had some really fabulous teachers, including fabulous science teachers. And I also had the opportunity to do a science project with a professor at uh, UMBC. Right, which, Baltimore uh, County. Yeah. Yes, which changed, which really changed the course of my um, thinking about science. I was still interested in geology. And I did this science project on bioluminescent bacteria, uh, which was uh, uh, fantastic. But uh, it just accelerated, maybe not changed the course, but accelerated uh, my yeah. desire to stay on my path. I, I knew I was going to head off to Wheaton College to be a geology major to eventually find a program uh, at the graduate level in oceanography. Because as we both know, there we, we, you couldn't get... Uh, an undergraduate degree in oceanography. Yeah, back then. That's right. Uh -huh. Do you remember what struck you most as the cultural differences or difficulties coming back? There were a lot of African-American students, which was difficult for me. <laughs> I'll come right out. There, the way that they spoke, their culture, their music, uh, it was all foreign to me. And most of my, uh, I made friends, but they were not Black friends. And there were times where I was looked at as being strange or you're, you're not black. You, you look like us, but you're, you're not black enough. <laughs> Interesting. So the separation between the Caucasian students and the African-American students must have been striking to you coming from Hawaii, where everyone intermingled with much greater ease. Yes. Having, having said that, there was less diversity in, in my high school in Maryland I don't remember seeing any students who were who were uh, Asian American. I know that there were, but in terms of my my sphere, the the classes and the activities that I was in, it was basically white and black students. Having said that, though, it was a good high school from the standpoint yeah. of people were mostly uh, friendly and accepting. And even when uh, black students kind of looked at me askance, they weren't being mean about it. They were like, there's something about you that's different and have a nice day. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, you were, you know, you said this earlier, you were other to them. You were a novelty to them, a, a type they hadn't encountered before. Yes, but it was still a very good uh, high school experience. And, you know, that high school does not exist and it's in the old form. They tore that high school down and they built uh, another high school, still Wild Lake High School, but it's bigger. To me, it looks more institutional. Uh, I don't think it has the open space, um, open schooling philosophy anymore. It's it's basically a regular uh, high school. So, so my uh, high school will never exist again. I've never yeah. been back to my high school yeah. reunions because it's not, to me, it's not there. <laughs> yeah. Did that open space philosophy, did that include any ability for, you said it was student-led, but that did that include ability for students to drive their learning through projects they defined, or, or was that sort of more orchestrated by the faculty? Yes, a couple of the classes that I had, I think this was in my senior year, I designed my own course. I, I designed my own little American history course. And in this course, I decided I was going to read Bury My Heart at Wounded Knee because I wanted to learn more about the, uh, the history of how our indigenous people were treated. And, this, and the, the idea behind these courses was for students to be given the freedom to delve into topics that they were not getting in the regular classes. So, so Wild Lake had that, they gave us that freedom. If you were 
uh, doing well as a student, uh, clearly an advanced student, they would let you design your own self-study courses, do your own reading, do a series of reports or projects, turn those in for grading with a teacher, but you were basically uh, given that freedom. And so I was really interested in American history and in that part of American history. And that's why I was, that's why I was talking to him with my mother about my high school experience just last night, because I still have this copy of Bury My Heart at Wounded Knee uh, right on my shelf over here. And it's still one of the most, to me, it was one of the most important books that I ever read as a young person, I'll say in the 70s. That's a great educational approach. I mean, if you want to launch students into the world, you know, able to be researchers or you know, lead organizations, that you know, high school, senior year kind of experience to formulate design and pursue something yourself is, and I've, I've wondered, I know you put together your, your own PhD program also at UC Santa Barbara, making a very unique mix, still unique, but very unique for the time between the, this very new unit they had that was around geographic data and information and geology. And I would have thought your, your Wild Lake High School experience kind of just set you up for that. It, that was not a first time foreign experience to you. It was, I know how to make a mashup, watch this, yeah. hold my beer. That's, that's, that's great, Kev. You know, I'd never even made that connection, but you're so right. And I asked at, at UCSB whether they still have this program. It's called the Individual Interdisciplinary PhD Program. And it was the brainchild of the graduate dean at that time who has since, who has since passed. So I don't think the, the program uh, has survived. But when I was at UCSB in the 1990s, David Simonette, uh, is mm -hmm. the, he was a professor in uh, the geography program, former graduate school dean. He scared all of us to death, but he was, he was <laughs> fantastic because he was just very in, uh, passionate and intense about you pursuing a substantive scientific question. I think one of the reasons why he came up with that program was because if there is something that needs to be investigated that is not being covered in a particular department or discipline, similar to my high school experience, where there were certain aspects of American history, for instance, that we were not getting in our courses. Reconstruction, that's another one. But in my case, I came to UCSB having this mishmash of a background uh, in geology and oceanography, but I had entered a geography program because by then I knew that I wanted uh, geography. and I didn't know what GIS was. <laughs> This is the deep, dark secret of Esri's chief scientist. He didn't, <laughs> I didn't know what, what even the acronym stood for when I entered my doctoral studies. <laughs> so there, it's out now. So every <laughs> Yeah, but you were in very good company and not knowing about the acronym at that point in time. Yes. It was still a very young art. It was still it a was young art. It was 1990s. Yes. <laughs> Thank you. I don't, feel so, I don't feel so bad. I mean, because now we have fifth grade, we have kindergartners who are, who are doing Who are doing GIS, yeah. <laughs> Yeah. You and I are always going to feel shame over that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> At any rate, there, uh, I really wanted to uh, understand uh, more of what we now know as data science issues of how we collect and uh, manage and interpret data from the seafloor more in real time and trying to understand how uh, the geology integrates with the biology, uh, with the physical oceanography, basically how we understand what happens at hydrothermal vents where all of those different facets of oceanography come together. And when you're, when you're diving or when you're at sea, you're at sea with the, the biologists and the chemists and the physicists. So you have to work together. And the hydrothermal vents, just to paint the picture for everyone, I always call these the, the deep black underwater yellowstones. These are specific locations on the seafloor where jets of super hot water are spewing up out of the ground. And they're called black smokers because the streams of water are black because they're carrying so much mineral material in them. And the world of science didn't even know that those existed until the mid seventies. And so it's an early story yet in figuring out really quite how, they, where are they all and how do they work and what is their role in pumping all the chemicals through the ocean that make our oceans what they are and that support all the life in the ocean. Absolutely, absolutely. And, and at that time, 
there needed to be a computer system to integrate the different types of observations that were being gathered at these amazing underwater Yellowstones in terms of the temperature of the water, the, the chemistry of the fluids. The critters that are living nearby. The critters that, that depended on that chemistry and those fluids, fluids to live. The cracks where the water uh, exits the seafloor to start building yeah. these chimneys. So enter GIS, Geographic Information System, which at the time was very good at managing different types of data, but which had not yet been applied very much to, to the ocean. It seems to me, uh, it's a metaphor I've been toying with that I think works for GIS, but you are the much wiser computer and data whiz. Uh, because one of the problems that plagues oceanographer is every, every expedition goes out to sea and each member of the science team collects their data using their instruments all too often in whatever format they've chosen. So a cruise at sea might come back with you know, six buckets of data, none of which can really readily be mashed together or intercompared. And it seems to me that what you and the, that large team at Estuary created, that framework for ocean data, ocean data needs an API kind of standard applied to it so that anyone who measures anything anywhere, their data could instantly and easily readily connect with anybody else's data collected anywhere else. And the, the marine GIS framework that you guys set up is, to me, is kind of that first API. If you want to be able to relate the data you gathered to the earth anywhere, put it into this framework. Yes, uh, and I love your mentioning of an API because in, in our world, that's an application programming interface. And so it's that interface part, uh, that connector and you know this is leading to Legos here because they, they are. <laughs> I knew APIs. you were going to get to Legos. <laughs> it was only a question of when. <laughs> uh, these APIs are the Lego bricks. You know, every someone gave me, and this is a great example. I think someone gave me a vintage uh, Lego kit from the 1960s. This I don't know how much this kit is worth. They found it in their garage. Uh, it's a, a wonderful, beautiful thing, the packaging, all from the 1960s. But I took those bricks out of that box and I added to what I was already building from a modern set. And this was right before I started building the Lego Discovery Space Shuttle. I was working on something else. But those bricks from the 1960s worked perfectly with the bricks from my 2021 set. And I was able to continue building. And that's exactly what we're talking about with data. In contrast to all the data that I collected during my PhD work in the 70s, which I'm sure has suffered the Indiana Jones fate, and it's in some <laughs> shoebox on yeah. some large <laughs> shelf somewhere doing nothing. <laughs> Don, I, I also wanted to ask you this: a couple of questions about your academic path, and yeah, thinking about the, you know, the the frantic stress and energy that so many students and families attached to, I, I have to go to the right school and it has to have the right major. And I mean, when you, you were convinced about and committed to Wheaton for a whole lot of reasons, but you went there knowing full well, it did not have the world's strongest geology department. It had a small one that was good and was rigorous, but was not going to be able to offer you some scale of undergraduate research experiences and things like that. Did you fret at all over that? Did you wonder or worry about is, uh, is holding to this commitment and passion to go to Wheaton, is that going to slow me down, prevent me reaching the goal I want? How are you thinking about that? That's an excellent question. Because to me, I wanted to be at a school where I felt as though I was getting the, the whole person treatment in terms of I wanted to be uh, built uh, as, a, as a good human being. I wanted to, to be able to mature in an environment that I felt comfortable in, that I felt nurtured. There was no way that I was going to be able to get that in my mind at a major large university. In fact, when I left Wheaton, when I graduated from Wheaton and then went to Texas A&M for my master's degree, that was another stepping out because I went from a campus with 2,000 students to a campus at the time that had, I think, 36,000. Oh. 
and of course, mostly undergraduates and their undergraduate experience was completely different uh, from mine. Uh, and so I, I did not have any trepidations at all because my mother had convinced me that a good solid liberal arts education can set you up for anywhere and any place. And I knew that I needed a graduate study in order to become an oceanographer. So I knew that the bachelor degree was not my final stop and that I was not gonna be uh, looking for a job or needing to start my uh, a, a professional career uh, after my undergraduate studies. I knew I needed to go directly to a graduate school. So thankfully, uh, Wheaton's geology program uh, was was stellar enough to get me into Texas A&M. And that was the, the leap that I needed to make. Yeah. And I was so happy to have been in a small, nurturing, fun, liberal arts community, even though it was tough moving to Texas A&M and moving to Texas, by the way, with their culture. But when, you, when you're fortified, when you, when you have the, the good family home training, so to speak, then it, it does, I think, set you in good stead. So for these young people who are who are pressured into uh, arrangements or or schooling or pathways that are not that don't feel right, I try to uh, encourage them to to follow what feels right, and hopefully you you have a consensus with your parents or with uh, people who are caring about you and raising you to follow that that instinct because that's what's really most important. And uh, the, the academics will come, uh, especially if you find the singular professor or lab group or, or unit or mentor who, who can carry you through. Yeah. Your pathway, your time through Wheaton and then in particular onto A&M are also times when it is, it is still rare for women to be going into the geoscientists and aiming to be independent researchers. I mean, w- women as technicians and support staff had been around for a while in earth sciences and the ocean sciences. But I mean, I mean, I was in grad school from 73 to 78 and happened to coincide with the first time ever a woman was the chief scientist of a major oceanographic expedition. Did you encounter any pushback or hassles about being a female in field camp or out at sea? I think there was... There was one other female with me in, in undergraduate field camp, but our field camp was so small. Uh, my geology program had produced seven, seven of us. <laughs> you knew each other. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and so we had a very small, intimate, very fun field camp. Absolutely no difficulties there, especially at a Christian college. But going to sea, now that is that was the eye-opener because... I actually took a gap, three gap years between my master and my PhD to work as a marine technician on the Joides Resolution, the drill ship. That drills hundreds of feet deep into the seafloor to get the geological record. Exactly. Yes. And is still on that same mission now as the Integrated Ocean Discovery Program, I think now is what the acronym stands for. So the Joides Resolution and other drill ships are still out there. But, oh, especially in the 80s, this is the 80s for me when I was uh, going to sea uh, as a marine technician and we were out for two months at a time. I think uh, aboard that vessel, there were 100 100 souls and 10 of us were were women. And there were varying levels of acceptance. I think there were always a few women in the scientific party. Uh, There were several of us women who were technicians so we were working in the labs, running the core samples uh, through the various tests, cataloging and photographing, doing all of that. But there was this dichotomy in the culture on that ship between the scientific culture, the scientists who were more broadly minded, and the oil patch, so to speak, because this was a drilling vessel that had been refitted from a standard oil and gas exploration vessel, totally a man's world. And the roughnecks and roustabouts, the drillers, the, the workmen from that world were also on that ship so that we could get the core. We, we needed them to, to get right. the core. And then we did the science on the core. And many of them were from the deep south or from Texas. Uh, one operations superintendent who he was in charge of that side of the culture on the ship, he never ever told his wife that there were women on that vessel because... 
in his culture, his family, that just was not done. And he was accepting it because he had to. And he always treated me with kindness and respect. Uh, he was he was fine, but he just he could never tell us. He never told his wife yeah. that there were women on board uh, yeah. because it, it just wasn't heard of. <laughs> I remember some of that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I know from one of your oral history interviews that when you finished your master's degree at Texas A&M, uh, I was about to pronounce the acronym, which is TAMU, which one should never do. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. Ooh. But you finish your master's degree and you're aspiring to a PhD and you did not get an exactly resounding endorsement from one of your key professors. Tell us about that. Oh, that's a story I tell often. Yeah. This is the story of failure is not final. <laughs> failure is not fatal. And therefore, it's not final because I, I had a situation where I had a very good graduate advisor. I would say scientifically, he, he was excellent. I really, uh, I loved his marine geophysics class. And so based on, on that class, I asked him to be my major advisor. But he was also fresh out of graduate school himself. And I was his first student. Uh, he was trying to, to find his way and to, he was uh, into the publish or perish Yep. Syndrome and Texas A&M was and is very, very competitive and he needed to publish or he was going to perish. And it turned out that he did not really have that much time uh, for me as a graduate student. I ended up seeking uh, advice uh, on this project that I had stepped out on because I was not strong in gravity studies. I wanted to do a, a gravimetric uh, survey and, and study of the, the Tonga Trench and I needed to take some geodynamics courses in another department. And I ended up seeking the advice of uh, graduate students in this separate geology and geophysics department. And they were the ones who actually taught me what I needed in terms of the numerical modeling and the computer modeling in order to complete this, this study. And I was able to complete it and write up the thesis and to defend it without very much uh, input or, or help uh, from my major professor. And so at the end of my defense, I was informed uh, by him that I had passed, but I had barely passed. And that given that, uh, it would be best for me to seek another career, maybe think about law school or maybe think about getting an MBA, but certainly not oceanography. I didn't have what it took to be an oceanographer, or at least uh, a, a geophysicist. How did you feel at that? <laughs> I, I felt I felt very deflated and distressed, but at the same time, I had passed. I had gotten that master's yeah. degree, and I had also uh, heard at, at that time the uh, ocean drilling program was looking for marine techs, and uh, I had applied and been accepted. So I knew that I had that as a next step, and that okay. I was going to learn more more about oceanography. I was going to get this amazing uh, experience. I was going to be able to go to sea uh, into the field and, and learn more than I could ever have imagined, even more so than going directly into a PhD program. So even though I was discouraged, I thought, well, that, does, that, that just doesn't make sense. There's no way in this world that I'm going to, to somebody's law school. I, I don't want to be a lawyer, and I, I, am, I am not a business person. That it just doesn't compute, and I'm and I'm not going to accept it. <laughs> so, how long did it take you to get from crestfallen to well, that was the wrong answer? Well, you know, I have this habit in my life of blotting out. Uh, I don't remember the the most severe, terrible things that have happened to me, so I just don't remember. I really don't just remember. Drop, <laughs> drop them and let them go. I, yeah, it's just just uh, it's not in the memory banks. I just remember though that. The next step with ODP was uh, was terrific, and uh, I had uh, Audrey Wright Meyer was one of the, and I think she's still associated with the Sea Education Association, mm -hmm. but I think she might have, there might be an astronaut connection with her. She she might have uh, applied to be an astronaut. At any rate, she was my supervisor at, at ODP, and she said, I understand that you were asked to leave the program. Uh, after your defense. And I said, yeah, I did pass and I did get my degree, but yes, it was a bumpy road. She said, well, that does not matter here. You are now, uh, you are a technician with us. We, uh, you're doing great work. We believe in you. And I want to send you out on leg 113 
for your first your first leg. And so, you know, <laughs> yeah, yeah, it was great. Good on her. I did want to touch on your Alvin dive in, in, I believe, 1991 for a couple of reasons. You are the first African-American, first African-American overall or first African-American woman to uh, dive first to, African-American woman. to the deep sea floor in Alvin. I think your first dive was in a region I also had a chance to dive to. But I'm curious, one of the dives on your leg, the entire crew aboard Alvin was female. And I'm wondering who the pilot was. Oh, yes. So that is a, the, the wonderful story that was told recently in the uh, Women of the Deep event of the Explorers Club, uh, which we can direct your listeners to for, for the full story there. But I, I loved that expedition because of my, one of my advisors, Rachel Heyman, was the co-chief scientist and she, it was really her brainchild to be uh, studying this stretch of the East Pacific rise. And uh, Cindy Lee Vandover was one of the Alvin pilots. She became an Alvin pilot as part of her postdoc, the coolest right. postdoc ever. ever. <laughs> and she's the reason I got my Alvin dive. It was on one of her expeditions. Oh, that's terrific. Yes. So it was, it was wonderful. A lot of great female energy there. Karen Von Damme, the great geochemist uh, was on board doing her thing. There were uh, several of us females. In fact, I think, it, I don't know if it was on that expedition, but uh, later when we went back to that same uh, segment on the East Pacific Rise, one of the second mates was a woman and we were all like, oh my gosh. <laughs> <laughs> the world is turning on its side. Yeah, it was great. <laughs> we're coming close to, Close to the time I've asked you to give me. So I, I want to fast forward a little bit and ask you to talk about your pathway to Esri. Uh, and I've got a couple of closing questions that'll tip you towards, you know, what are you working on next? But I, I want to be sure we have some time to connect you to Esri. Also bring back that Lego connection. Where did where did that <laughs> where did that joy and fascination start? <laughs> so you see Santa Barbara making this unique blend of marine geology and geographic information systems and data systems and all of that. And I know Esri at one point, some years later, realizes they want to extend their capability into the ocean realm. But you're at Oregon State, on faculty at Oregon State, teaching and doing research. How does the bridge to Esri happen? And and are you still one foot in each camp or beginning to, <laughs> is, is there a lean in developing to one side or the other? Yeah, this is uh, where to start. So in terms of the, the Esri connection, when I graduated from uh, UCSB, I was able to get a postdoc at NOAA and continue the marine GIS work with Chris Fox's lab, Pacific Marine Environmental Lab, but in Newport, Oregon, not the one in Seattle, not the main one in Seattle. And that was very interesting because that postdoc was only eight months long because it was negotiated as part of my tenure track uh, post at Oregon State. So that was another unusual thing that happened to me. I didn't do the traditional postdoc jumping from one place to another. When Oregon State hired me, I asked them for a postdoc. I said, I'm not ready to come onto campus first to teach. Can you allow me to do this postdoc? I've been talking with Chris Fox and his group and I would really like to work with them and maybe get some grants written and hit the ground running when I come to, to the main Corvallis campus. So they granted that to me. And when I did arrive uh, on campus about a year later in Corvallis at Oregon State, my immediate uh, mission, what they needed from me was to revamp their GIS program, their, the, all of the, the GIS curriculum, because we had another professor, John Kimmerling, who was doing all of his specialty, which was cartography, doing all of the GIS and doing all of the remote sensing. He was just doing it. He had an impossible teaching load. So I took the GIS part off of his shoulders. And of course, at the time, and even now, if you're going to teach GIS to students, you teach with Esri technology, as well as with open source and other technologies. But Esri is still the 800-pound gorilla, so to speak, and in terms of producing students who are going to be marketable, uh, especially to the federal government, state government, lo local government, environmental consulting firms, they need to have the ESRI technology. 
as part of their fundamental geographic information science teaching. So I, I need to make that distinction because the courses I, were, I was teaching were about fundamental information science, but their, their laboratory, their uh, hands, getting their hands dirty uh, exercises were done with Esri technology. And I had students that uh, I was sending to Esri's International User Conference. I was trying to, I was sort of knocking on Esri's door in terms of what you are producing is not what it should be for the oceanographic community. Uh, so I was writing letters to Jack Dangerman and I was, uh, along with another staffer at Esri, we created this uh, ocean special interest group for the user conference. So that's actually how that, that started. And so with Esri, you, are, you enter into this family. Uh, you're using their technology. You get to know some of their staff, especially if you go to their annual conference. And so after many, many years of that, uh, I did get this message uh, from, from Jack and from Scott Morehouse, who was their chief software architect, about considering uh, a role as their chief scientist. And it came for me at a wonderful time where I was uh, about to start a sabbatical and I was looking for a bit of a change of direction anyway. And so as part of my sabbatical, I was allowed to go to Esri and work at Esri full time. Now, it was my intention to go back to Oregon State after two years. I had a wonderful dean at the time who said, we will work with you on this sabbatical. We're not going to make you come back after a year. Uh, you can renew this uh, and let's just see how it goes. So uh, I went to Esri with the intent of going back to Oregon State. Jack Dangerman, of course, both of us know Jack, and he had no <laughs> intention of that. He, he said, you, you are here now. You have moved to Redlands. You are chief scientist. That's, that's it. I don't know. I, 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 no, oh. you're here. <laughs> yeah. he, his powers of persuasion are considerable. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> but the wonderful thing about the uh, arrangement in fact, when I was having lunch with Jack during my interview, I said, Jack, this, this whole arrangement sounds wonderful. Has my ship come in uh, in terms of being able to really have uh, all of these things I was asking for uh, in terms of ocean, uh, the, the 3D and the temporal analysis? He said, yes, get to work. <laughs> so the... Uh, so the, so the ocean science was part of my mandate as chief scientist, but I always remind people that I was never hired as Esri's chief ocean scientist. I've had the great pleasure and it's been marvelous to work across the board between Esri and the science community on hydrology, land geology and geophysics, terrestrial ecology, agricultural science, conservation biology, climatology, uh, sustainability science, uh, what we're calling uh, geodesign now. And of course the, the, tra the traditional computer science or what we're calling now uh, spatial data science. So that has always been part of my uh, mandate. But uh, along the way, we, we have really grown a wonderful ocean team here. And we have uh, all of these, uh, these projects. Uh, we've, we've ever expanded our portfolio and our linkages with NOAA, also with NASA now with some of their, their earth science data. So it's, it's been a wonderful, a wonderful ride. And what happened to me, though, with Oregon State is that I did decide to shift my status, especially during a time where there was a change in our leadership at Oregon State, and my department was actually moved into a new college under a new dean, and there was not a meeting of the minds in terms of my prior uh, arrangement. So it, it became clear to me that it would be better for me to switch my status to courtesy or affiliated professor and to give up my tenure at Oregon State, knowing that I was not going to return. But that has worked out very, very well. So far, so good. <laughs> but you, you remain beloved up there and you have an excellent ship down in Redland. So I, I think that's pretty okay. <laughs> Let's shift gears one more time. I'm having fun asking my guests a, a fairly randomly chosen set of sort of lightning round questions. If you could have one more deep submersible dive, where would you want to go? I would want to go to Challenger Deep. There, there is uh, hope. Victor and I are, are having discussions right right now, but I would want to do that dive for sure. <laughs> Out, outstanding, highly recommended. Um, <laughs> super salad. 
Oh, salad. Book or movie? Movie. <laughs> Your favorite Lego build? Oh, I should say the Lego uh, NASA Space Shuttle Discovery. Oh, now you're, now you're just patronizing me. Now I'm just... <laughs> <laughs> but there is a, a Lego three-masted sailing ship that is, is also one of my favorites. Outstanding. What's the bravest thing you've ever done? Ooh, that's a really good one. I think the bravest thing I've ever, de- ever done is to trust my mother uh, in all of our life decisions. Excellent. What scares you? Snakes. <laughs> There's absolutely no hesitation, especially now that I live in this part of California where yeah. there are rattlesnakes. Yep. Yep. That's it. <laughs> <laughs> What's the best morsel of advice you offer to young 30-somethings career advice? Follow your, your instincts, whatever is uh, your passion that you enjoy. Those are also things that you tend to be uh, very good at, or you have the capability of being good at so that you can succeed. So don't let people divert you uh, from, from that path. Okay, now, so how did you get to be such a great, are you officially a Lego maniac? Oh, yes. Uh, I, I'm what the, what is called the AFOL, adult fan of Lego. And there's a whole series of documentaries about AFOLs, <laughs> none of which I would be interesting enough to be featured in because uh, the, the adult fans of Legos, these are the true artists. They are able to create all kinds of things. I must follow the instructions in a Lego kit <laughs> to the letter. <laughs> How many have you built? I, I don't know. I Let's see, I do have a spreadsheet here, so I can bring up my uh, spreadsheet, which does have all of my... <laughs> and she's my organized. <laughs> and it's up, to, <laughs> it's up to 67. Oh, my goodness. So the, the Space Shuttle Discovery was my 67th build. I actually started building Lego. I did not play with Lego very much as a child. So this is a, the other deep, dark secret. I was really turned on to Lego in a big way to relax while studying for my qualifying exams as a doctoral student. Aha. So the, the kit that the build that's right over my head that you can see behind me, that was uh, built during my time that I was sequestered preparing for those qualifying exams. And it was such a wonderful experience. It was relaxing. There was a symmetry and success because you knew it was going to turn out if you follow the instructions, you're going to get this amazing result. And it was a, a pirate ship. I'm a, a seems a appropriate for an oceanographer. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So that that's what started it all. So I've been in, in this Lego mode really since the early 1990s. Wow, that's fabulous. <laughs> Well, Don, it is always a delight to speak with you. And I knew before we even hit the record button that your stories would be full of humor, but also deep insight and all sorts of nuggets of inspiration and wisdom for our listeners and prod them to some, some greater confidence or greater vision the next time they confront one of those, oh my gosh, stepping out moments. So, so thank you so very much for joining me. Oh, thank you so very much, uh, Kathy. It was so much fun. And your questions were so insightful. And there's so many uh, parallels between us. And I I have just loved this last uh, hour or so. Thanks so much for joining me on today's mission. For more solo shows and deep dives with incredible guests, along with all the ways to get the podcast and much more, head over to kathysullivanexplores.com. This podcast is brought to you by the InterAstra Institute. New episodes are available on Spotify, Apple Music, and most everywhere podcasts are found. To be the first to know when the next episode drops, head over to interastra.space.